Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, yeah. Don't clap on one, you monster, Matt. <laughs> we clap after one. Why do we have to have this conversation? We are 58 episodes into this podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan. So, Joey, two zombies were walking into a bar, and the bartender said, Hey, we don't serve zombies around here. And one zombie said, That's cool. How's your human, though? Matt, (laughs) I'm going to need you to... They eat peoples. Because have you ever seen any movie ever? Matt, I'm going to need you to take that joke back to the drawing board, just like the new Sonic movie. Anyway, next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Um, I'm going by Dana the Ineffable now, Joey, so just try to keep that um, in mind. Weren't you the dragon god last episode? Listen, I like to shake it up, keep things different every time, keep you on your toes, and right now I'm feeling ineffable. That sounds very effable of you. (laughs) And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. Ladies and gents, we have a guest with us this week. Please welcome the lab maniac himself, Cameron Bashand. Hi. It's Welcome Cameron, how's to the show, Cameron. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I... So, Cameron, people probably know you a little bit more than they know us, to be perfectly honest. But introduce yourself. What is it that you do in the EDH community? Well, uh, I am the video editor, and I am one of the players in the Laboratory Maniacs. We're a YouTube and content creation group that's focused on competitive EDH. Uh outreach and awareness as well as some edutainment type things. Uh, So we put out deck techs and gameplay videos and set reviews 
taking a look at the spikier side of Commander because it's one of the funnest formats out there. And, you know, everybody's got to push everything just a little bit. And we're just trying to have fun at the top end. And competitive EDH, that's something that we don't have any experience with. So we're happy to have you on to maybe help enlighten us about that format a little bit, because it does sort of feel like a whole separate format sometimes. You know, it really is. There are so many differences, and it's just a whole big shift on its own. I mean, I played casual commander for, oh man, eight years before I started ever even trying to play competitive EDH. And there's just so many things that don't work. But then there's also a lot of things that you get to do in competitive that you just don't get to do in casual commander. So it is fun in that little scratch that itch type of feeling. And Matt, Dana, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys haven't dabbled too much with competitive EDH, right? I have not. I I have only used commander as a kind of a way to take a break from my competitive formats. I play the modern and the legacy um, so Commander for me is the way to tone down all that competitive edge, but never dabbled into the to the CEDH realm. Yeah, um, not not me either. Um, I have a Edric deck that's kind of CEDH adjacent, um, might be the way you would phrase it. It's not a true CEDH deck, but it probably plays about as close to that level as you can get without crossing into that territory. But I really don't play it against CEDH deck. That's kind of my one where... Somebody brings a pub stomp deck to a table. It's my response deck when they've been super annoying. So it's not I'm not familiar with the format in the way you need to be to play it well. It's much different than Commander in that you really need to understand the deck the person's playing against you, what the pieces are doing. You can't be nearly as reactive as you can be in, in Casual Commander. So... Um, I, I'm, I would never dare say that I'm a, a person who knows anything about it at all. I mean, definitely lines up with my experience as well. Cameron, I have to ask what it is that got you interested in this particular version of EDH? Well, uh, like I said, I played casual EDH for eight years and I kind of tried all of the big archetypes. I tried tokens, I tried control, I tried graveyard shenanigans, I tried discard, I... I went through everything and I got to the point where I really didn't have anything new that was really interesting to try besides some of the more spikier options. And I started uh, playing with a few people at Mox Boarding House in Bellevue. And I also joined a Skype group where we were playing over webcams. And um, I took a dip into it. I actually tried building a control deck at the very start, which was kind of a, a bad decision, but it's what I did. Because, uh, you know, to build a control deck <laughs> for any sort of format, you need to know what's happening. And so my, my first iteration, people were like, uh, this isn't r slash EDH. You probably want to go over there to have them review your deck. And uh, since then, um, things have gotten a little bit better over uh, in the community. And... Kind of like that experience that I had when I started into competitive EDH got me into the content creation side where I was like, you know, we could do better. And we are now. And I really like that. Oh, well, that's definitely good to hear. What kind of decks are you playing nowadays then? Well, uh, actually, I still have about eight casual decks with me uh, that I take to any event I go to. Probably my favorite. I've had it. It was the second deck I ever made. It's an eight and a half tails mono white control deck. 
and it started as a token deck and over the years shifted to, and I call it eight and a half rafts. It actually has about 17. Um, huh. And it is mono white board control and it teaches you how to play a asymmetrical game where you are trading one card for four or 10 cards and trying to outvalue when you're in white and you can never draw cards. Uh, that's my favorite deck. It's been foiled out. Um, but then for competitive EDH, I have uh, Tassiger Control, which is one that I built and I still maintain, and it's an incredibly fun deck. And right now I have Niv-Mizzet Perun, which is a very fun Izzet uh, Scepter deck, and it just Niv-Mizzet's so amazing once he hits play. It's great. <laughs> So kind of an interesting thing when we were concocting show notes, you know, coming up with questions that we wanted to ask you, a thing that came up is that it almost would be more beneficial for us to talk about the archetypes within competitive EDH that are most uh, popular as opposed to the commanders that are most popular within CEDH. Uh, that was just kind of interesting. Usually on this show, what we like to talk about is all of the most popular commanders, but CEDH, as we've established, is a very different beast. So do you mind, just to start us off, running us through the deck archetypes that we would normally see in a CEDH game? Yeah, sure. I mean, and one of the things you were just saying is that the commanders, that one of the big things is partners they can be used in so many different settings. And so the 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 options you have for like a Thrasius and Timna deck is pretty much wide open. Uh, but probably the f big first one that people most know about is Food Chain. And so there's Food Chain Prosh that's been around for forever. And you're using Food Chain with a creature that you can cast from exile. You exile it with Food Chain to add mana plus one of any color to its CMC. So Mist Holographin costs three and a blue you can cast it from exile. So you cast it, you exile it for five mana of any color to cast a creature, and then you play it again. And you just play that infinitely. You get infinite mana that you can only spend on creatures. And then you have a general that wins you the game based off of that. Uh, so like Prosh, Tazri, Niv-Mizzet Reborn, which people are super stoked about for more of the spark. Like it is amazing. Uh, and then the most of the time, the, uh, the food chain generals, if you get stifled, or you lose food chain, it's pretty much game over. But then like Niv-Mizzet, he still is like a 6-6 six, six flyer that you can just protect and go in for commander damage. Um, and when you get past food chain, then you're looking at like Flash Hulk, which that's pretty new. Uh, over, it's what, I think it was, it was with partners. So it was late 2016 when uh, Leovold got banned and Protean Hulk got unbanned. And now you just have Flash and Hulk and decks that are aimed at winning off of just casting Flash. And so you have a lot of partners that are in there. Usually it's uh, blue, green, black, and white. So Thrasios and Timna. And there's so many ways of going off with Flash it with Hulk. It's just crazy. Uh, the easiest ones are like Breakfast, which is based off of the Legacy deck. Cephalid Breakfast. You get Cephalid Illusionist, which is a two mana cephalid that when it's targeted by a spell or ability you mill three cards from your library and then nomad's encore which is a one mana white creature that lets you pay zero and redirect the next damage from nomad's encore to another creature or sorry from another creature to nomad's encore and you just target your illusionist and you mill yourself out and then you win through any number of different ways of having your entire library in your graveyard through a, a dread return which is sack three creatures and reanimate a dude um, or Cameron, I, I gotta be honest, my head is already spinning and we've only gotten through <laughs> two deck archetypes. <laughs> yeah. I, some of them, 
the the big things are the the main combo is not actually how you win the game it's just the engine that you're using so food chain as your engine uh flash hulk as your engine to get to the combo that actually wins the game uh, right then you have and and so food chain just because there are probably a few listeners who aren't familiar because food chain is what an onslaught card or something like that so it's a little old what is it let's you... masks yeah there but here matt you know food chain a little bit better how about you describe it for us then yeah so food chain like cameron said you exile a creature and you basically get its converted mana cost back plus one and you can just use that up to cast all your creature spells so basically like cameron was saying you cast prosh and make a bunch of goblins and you sacrifice prosh to food chain and get more mana back and then you sacrifice the kobolds that come out with prosh because whenever you cast prosh you get a bunch of kobolds equal to how much mana you put into prosh to cast them from the command zone so you make oodles and oodles of kobolds and you can use perforos or you can do whatever else so one thing i noticed cameron you're talking about a lot of really powerful engines how do you actually win games with some of these engines well that's one of the things that's kind of changed over the last two or three years is that with partners specifically thrasios is that you don't need specific win cons you don't necessarily need uh like a lab maniac in the deck though some people still do uh but once you get like a state where you have infinite mana you can just draw your deck with thrasios and then you could say assassin's trophy all of your opponent's permanents now i'm saying that kind of cavalier uh so you assassin's trophy somebody's permanent and then you either cast a time twister, which I understand probably people don't have it. Uh, it's a pretty expensive card. If you don't have that, we use Memory's Journey, which shuffles three cards from your graveyard into your library. And you shuffle a regrowth and an Assassin's Trophy and any other cards. And then you draw those again with Thrasios. And then you keep going. And you've Assassin's Trophied all your opponent's stuff away. And then you can pass the turn and keep going and you have infinite mana and you can always remove anything they do um or you could aetherflux reservoir and you've just cast 300 assassins trophies cast one more kill everybody um some decks are to the point where they're not even running specific win cons so if you can assume that we can cast any spell any number of times through looping a regrowth and a memory's journey you do stuff like nature's claim your own soul ring to gain for life and do that until you have the most life and then you rolling earthquake out the table so that that's a x red card that deals x damage to each player and each creature without horsemanship so you get to 70 some odd life and you rolling earthquake for 45 and everybody dies except for i you. feel like throughout the entirety of this i can hear dana cringing at the concept that decks don't have a specific win condition well no because it's a, it's a different deal though like it's not it's not commander it's cedh so you're playing in a whole different field like it's it's like a, I mean, like you know as a bull we're getting mad about a tennis player like it's a different deal <laughs> and in the things camera's talking about are one of the main reasons why it's different than what i was kind of alluding to before like i don't need to know every specific card in that Brago deck I'm facing down when I'm playing like 75% EDH. I just know that Brago's, Brago's going to bring stuff, blink stuff to get value and maybe eventually achieve some kind of a lock or some kind of a superior board state to win via combat damage. But the specifics are kind of irrelevant. 
That's the opposite of this here, where like you need to know what every one of these obscure cards is going to do and how it's going to interact in this like ridiculous puzzle piece. It's just a completely different mindset. Uh, not quite as much, actually. So, no? well, so like I'm saying, most of the decks are they're they're named after their uh, their main combo or sorry, their main engine. So if you know what their engine is or what their plan is, you don't need to know the specific cards. You just need to know how to interact with their main combo. So if you see, say, Thrasios, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to be running a dramatic reversal on an Isochron Scepter, and there's a pretty good chance they're going to be running a Paradox Engine. So regardless of what any other plan they're doing, you can know that Isochron Scepter on the stack probably means that they have a dramatic reversal in their hand. And if they cast a Paradox Engine, they if they don't have any mana up, they're probably preparing to have like a zero mana spell to come right after that Paradox Engine. So you don't, usually the fights aren't over how you win. It's how you get to the point of being able to win. So rather than, hey, this is my crater hoof, it's here's my Genesis wave. So, so you're fighting just a step further forward in the chain. Okay. That, that is pretty interesting, fighting over the engine as opposed to the win condition. Most of the counterspell wars that I see in my normal groups would be over, indeed, cards like you mentioned, Greater Hoof Behemoth or an overwhelming Stampede or something like that. Those definitely tend to be the, the game-ending things, and we pay less attention to the fact that the person was, you know, creating 10 tokens over the course of the past few turns. Yeah. And so for CEDH, you're like, you're like, no, no, pay attention to those tokens. That's the stuff that really matters here. And that's a really interesting perspective to have on the format. Yeah. We went through a few of the uh, particular archetypes, but not all of them. You had mentioned Food Chain and Flash Hulk, where you flash in Protein Hulk and then it immediately sacrifices and you get some weird combination of things to assemble an engine just like that. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned Dramatic Scepter and Paradox Engine. Are there any other archetypes that we should know about for CEDH? Yeah, so there is Classic Storm. It's not as strong as it once was, but most of the time it's just aimed at putting out an Aetherflux Reservoir, um, and usually it's winning off of an ad nauseum. Uh, so in casual commander, ad nauseum is usually draw five cards, you lose 35 life. So it's reveal <laughs> the top card of your library, lose life equal to its converted mana cost, put that card in your hand. You may repeat this. Now, when your average CMC is like 3.5 to 5, that really hurts. But when your average CMC is 1.5, it me makes that a five mana instant speed spell is on average a draw 35. I, I did the math and I ran it up against like 10,000 simulations on a Yidris deck and it really is draw 35 cards and about 15 of those are gas cards that you would use to win the game. That sounds delicious. I might want to play this format. It, it, so the thing is, if you think about it, if four people come down to the table and sit down with nukes, nobody's mad when a nuke goes off, right? Everybody brought it. Everybody's <laughs> expecting it to happen. One of them's going to go off. Okay, shuffle up and start over. So if you right. come with the mindset of let's do this and let's have some fun with it, it gets to be where you end up casting just the same number of spells you would do in a casual game. It's just you do it in like four or five turns instead of eight to ten. And everybody's still really interactive. You're, you're fighting over the stack. You're not fighting over the battlefield nearly as much. Well, and you you, and you do have to you do also remove that concern, like you kind of mentioned about everyone's bringing the nuke to the table. There is no longer that question of 
did I accidentally play too strong of a deck? Did I, you know, bring the wrong? Is is this stacks deck too cruel for this person who's trying to play, you know, werewolf tribal or something? It just becomes a non-issue. Yeah, 100%. And that's probably the best part about it is that you get to play those those formats that people aren't like really into playing against. I mean, yes, I have sat down at a table and we've had four stacks decks and we all knew it going in and we hated ourselves afterwards, but we still played through the game because we wanted to see who would get through it. It's actually, it's a real fun challenge trying to work through all the the nuances. It's not about getting to the win. It's it's the journey there that's the real fun part of competitive EDH. <laughs> it's not the destination. It's the players that we slaughtered along the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every single time. Uh, so, uh, Danny, you had said stacks. And that is actually one of the really strong decks or one of the really strong archetypes. And it's also some of them are pretty cheap to get into the format. Um, I mean, I'm saying this when some decks average about seven grand. And some of that's yeah. from some really old cards. So, like, you're, you're, the unbudgeted version has a tabernacle, a pendle veil, and a time twister. Uh, yeah, those are pricey. Yeah, they are. But then, like, a Tana and Timna stacks deck is called Blood Pod, um, named after Blood Moon, which turns everybody's non basic lands into mountains, and Birthing Pod, so that you can chain up to a Kiki Jiki combo win, is like $1,500 fully unbudgeted with duels. Like, it, it's. Actually, a really strong, really cheap deck overall, mainly because it doesn't have blue. Yeah, it's a miracle what non-blue duels will do to a budget when you are <laughs> buying yes. duels. Yeah, I almost, I almost feel compelled to ask. This is something that I've heard when people are talking about, especially the format Canadian Highlander, also a hundred-card singleton format. But those players tend to liken it a lot more to Legacy than they would to a Commander deck, even though the deck similar, the the decks and their building requirements are fairly similar. Would you liken CEDH closer to EDH, or would you liken it to another format like Legacy or Vintage? I mean, so it is pretty... It's using a lot of Legacy combos. So if there was a Legacy deck at some point in time, people have tried to do that in Commander. But at the same time, we have access to things that legacy, that's banned in Legacy. So Protean Hulk is banned in Legacy. Demonic Tutor, Soul Ring... Uh, mana crypt uh, all banned in legacy but we get to play them so we have a ban list that is less restrictive than legacy slightly more restrictive than vintage but then we have we have the thing where we have cards in vintage that are restricted so you get them a quarter as often but those cards have the same frequency showing up in edh as every other card so in some cases it's even better than vintage so it Power level wise, it is akin to somewhere in between vintage and legacy. Interesting. Alrighty. I think we've got maybe one or two more archetypes to go through. Yeah. Let's hear those. Uh, so we have classic control, which is basically just killing everything and biding your time until you can fit in a win. And then we've got mid range decks that have kind of shown up a bit more in the last year with partners, usually they're doing asymmetrical stacks things. Uh, so I didn't hit this before, but in stacks, there's really four big pieces of stacks. There's creature hate, so like uh, Cursed Totem, you can't activate your creature's abilities. Uh, there's artifact hate, so Null Rod or Stony Silence, artifact activated abilities of artifacts can't be activated. There's non-basic land hate, so you've got um, back to basics, non-basic lands don't untap, or you have Blood Moon. And now, more recently, we have Grave Hate. So, rest in peace, Graph Digger's Cage. Uh, 
And I hate those. Do not the, like. Do not want. Yes. The uh, the mid-range decks are usually aimed at using one of those pieces of hate and building their decks so that they don't care about it. And most of the time it's like grave hate and artifact hate, or it's grave hate and creature hate. So you can have only artifacts and you 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 build it so that you don't care that it's in play and you put it in play as soon as possible and you just run with your plan and everybody else has to deal with that and they can't move with their plan until you're done. And then the very last really big one is commander-centric cards. Uh, commander-centric combo decks. So you have like Gitrog, where you're just playing with lands. You've got Momir Vig Hackball, which is a really fun one that's pretty new. You change Momir Vig, so he says like green and green instead of green and blue. So you play oh, with those old blue spells that change color words. Yeah, the color cards? hacks. Yep. Yeah. Weird. So you play Momer and then you play a green dude and it, you search for a green creature and you put it on top. And then because you played a green dude, you draw it and you just elf ball combo out. Uh, and then you have like Najila where you're aiming at making a bunch of warriors and swinging. You have Godo um, with uh, the helm from Dominaria where you just make infinite Godos and you just get to attack for forever. You have a Nala, which makes wizards, and you can combo out there. You've got Edric, like Dana had. And it's basically Edric and extra turns, and you tempo people out. So those are the really big archetypes. And most of the time, about halfway through a game, you can pin down every single deck at the table and know the archetype they're in and start adjusting your play according to that. Now, you say halfway through the game, is there, and this is probably a silly question, it may not have an answer, but is there an average game length that you would approximate for a game of CEDH? Depends on the pods. It really depends on the archetypes. Like if everybody is just on a combo deck, hmm, you might hit turn three. I'm just serious. You might hit turn three. Uh, if you have like a control deck, a stack stack, um, a food chain deck and a combo deck or a flash hulk deck, then you're probably going to hit like turn eight to 12. I mean, the game will go long. I had a game that we were recording for Lab Maniacs and just play time where we started cutting out anything extra. Actual play time was three and a half hours. Wow. And that's wow. Yeah. And it got to a point where I was just ran. I was naturally drawing. I ended up dying to combat damage and I had drawn down to like 15 cards left in my deck and just not actually digging that heavily. I was just drawing cards. That sounds like, um, like a bit of a nightmare. Dana, Matt, I have to ask now that we've got a brief rundown of the different archetypes in competitive EDH, which one calls most to you? I mean, I'm already playing semi that Edric deck is about as close as I'm going to get. I, I just don't know. I, I think it's just not for me is what it is. I, I, in part, just because I also, you know, tend to play my magic after a long day at work, and my brain just can't do that. Like I do, I, <laughs> it just can't. And it might not be the work as a result of that, Dana. It might just be that your brain can't do well, it. Well, maybe that could be too. That could just be. <laughs> I'm just joke. That could be the case. Absolutely. Um, so I think for me, that's it. like it's 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 not that I don't specifically want to play CDH. It's I also don't want to play Vintage or Legacy. I, I just don't. When I'm playing Magic, it's not what my brain wants me to do for fun. So um, it's interesting to watch, but like, I just don't want to do that um, after you know having worked for nine hours at my job for the man. But that's really it. Like, I think it's interesting to watch, and I I really enjoy watching some of the videos on YouTube. 
seeing how all the pieces come together, I think it's a fascinating format. It's just not for me. Well, you're ruining my hypothetical question. Sorry, man. Matt, Matt, what about you? Uh, so I actually, the closest I've ever gotten to CEDH was I had a Narset deck that was packed to the gills with oh, all the mana yeah. crypts and fast mana. And then all of a sudden I'd play an Ugin or time stretch and make the table miserable. And that was fun every now and then. But for us, it was, that was kind of where our, my play group got, where we all got these hyper tuned decks. And then we eventually were like, okay, we kind of need to hit a reset button. So we'd take those decks out every now and then just to, to bump uglies, but it was maybe like, like I've called it before a slump buster where you play that one deck, kind of let, let them get it out. And then we go back to playing more casual games. Uh, if I went at it again, I mean, I would probably force a Lurin in bug colors. I wish I could play Leovold because it's Leovold. Uh, no. Hey, yeah. <laughs> it's cool. You, you just have to assemble your own Leovold now, which is totally doable. So yeah. Now, now that new Narset's out, you have half She's of it. She's so good. She's, She's very so good. So good. Well, so, okay, that brings us to another important question. We're in the wake of War of the Sparks release. Cameron, are there any cool cards from War of the Spark, such as the new Narset, that are going to be making waves in CEDH? So this set has the most cards that can be impactful to CEDH since ever. Like, it is amazing. I, probably since Partners. Um, it has been, it has so many great things. The, the three mana walkers are a beautiful piece of design. They fit in in so many places. Ashiok is like just amazing. In a mid range deck or in a control deck, it's both tutor hate, it's fetch land hate, but then it's also incidental graveyard hate. It's amazing. <laughs> Nard. Don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I totally Leave understand. My graveyard alone. But the thing is, is it's asymmetrical, so you can run it. Think about <laughs> it. It's a, like the asymmetrical part about these are so good. And then, I am an equal graveyard enjoyer. I want to steal things from everyone's graveyards. True, true. I understand. <laughs> uh, Narset is amazing. Narset's reversal is bonkers. Uh, I I can't sing play designs praise enough where they've made an incredibly powerful yet balanced set i mean narset's reversal i don't remember that one which is that th that feels like a spell that, that, that somebody screwed up and doesn't realize how good it is so so it it's a blue blue you return target instant or sorcery on the stack to its owner's hand and then you put a copy of it on the stack so in in, in casual games you know when somebody does like genesis wave for 12 you can just play uu and bounce that Genesis Wave for 12 back to their hand, and then you get to Genesis Wave for 12. I mean, yeah, I guess that sounds pretty good. I guess I just had always sort of assumed that it would be a bit like a twin cast or something, but you make a compelling case, sir. Yeah, so you could do that. I mean, if you think about it, the floor on it is an unsubstantiate. Just return target spell to its owner's hand. It gets past uncounterable, and it's just hitting instances and sorceries. The top end is return target demonic tutor to its owner's hand, demonic tutor yourself. Or in our format, ad nauseum, uh, in casual expropriate. I'll just expropriate for two mana. Sure. <laughs> it seems and, okay. okay. And then probably kill the person who has the expropriate oh, yeah. in their hand before they get a chance to actually cast it again. Oh, that's a good point. Like it, it is a very powerful spell, and it's one that 
standard isn't going to be nearly as heavily beat up on as it's going to be for EDH. Cause just cause in, in casual EDH, you're playing big spells. You're having giant effects in like a battle cruiser meta, or even in pre-cons you have your five and your eight mana sorceries. And this just, just like, Nope, I'll take that please. Thank you. All right. Sounds good. What other cards are showing up that are making some waves? Well, uh, Nim is reborn. Uh, he's going to be a new commander. Anytime we see a new commander, it's a fun time because it's it's new uh, brewing and you get to delve into new things. So Niv Mizzet, it's a it's going to be food chain and it gets through things like uh, it gets through a stranglehold. Whereas Tazri, you search for an ally. Niv Mizzet, you just reveal the top cards. And then we're more likely to get a new Niv Mizzet win con we're very unlikely to get more ally win cons. So, oh, that's a good point. As since, yeah, yeah, as creature types, and those are that's so interesting. I do the Commander Showdown series, so frequently I compare two commanders and their strategies across when they're fairly similar. It's so weird to think of Niv Mizzet Reborn being similar to General Tazri, but in CEDH they perform a very similar function, and that's just such a weird backflip for my brain to try and do right now. Yeah, if you if you look at it as Assemble food chain infinite mana. You can now cast your commander a million times. Well, Tazri gets you an ally, and those allies say when an ally enters play, you do something. And usually it's like your opponents lose two life. And then you exile Tazri and you do it again, and you just kill everybody. Uh, whereas Niv Mizzet is look at the top 10 cards, put one of each guild into your hand. And there's a few cards from way back in the day that are like, um sawtooth loon it's a white and blue creature that when it enters play you return a blue or a white creature to your hand and then you draw two cards and you put two cards from your hand on the bottom of your library so if you draw two cards so if you pick up a creature first you pick up sawtooth loon you draw two cards and then you put sawtooth loon on the bottom of your library you've now added a card to your hand and then you just recast Nibmizit until you hit Sawtooth Loon again. And that way you can draw your deck. And then you can win through some other method. It's amazing what you can do with infinite mana in this game, huh? Oh, yeah. The, the possibilities are quite endless. And the fact that you always have a commander available to you makes it so that having a combo outlet in the command zone or an infinite mana outlet in the command zone makes it so you can just pretty much do anything once you have your deck. So... A really old one was like Una, Queen of the Fae, which is just exile somebody's library for black X. And you just dump a million mana into it. And hey, exile all your cards for every black one. Give me a fairy and then do it to the next person. Now it's Thrasio. So I, I draw my deck and I put all my lands into play. And then I've got 60 cards. How do I win? Um, sort of seems like an infinite mana combo race to it format, I guess. Yeah, but usually it's a lot more of piloting and posturing it's a lot of posturing <laughs> where well because if it's 1v3 uh so if you're trying to go off you have three other players that are trying to stop you and you have to figure out when it's a good time to try to go off or to not do anything and leave up mana and say hmm i'm just gonna make it look like i'm gonna interact with anything people are doing <laughs> and it's, it's probably 1v3 really much like really really frequently too like in in casual commander you do get the 1v3 where the person pulls ahead and every, everyone focuses on them to knock them back down to kind of parity and then somebody else pulls ahead 
but that takes place over the course of multiple turns. And I feel like mm-hmm. here you're, you're looking at that. You pass a turn and it's now 1v3. And then that person passes the turn and it's not 1v3 on them. Like I think it, yep. the, the shift probably happens that quickly versus over the course of multiple turns. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's one of the reasons why mostly when you're playing with competitive EDH decks, you want everybody at the table to be playing a competitive EDH deck. It's because <laughs> it's it's essentially social loafing if you're not. Because part of when I'm playing and it's the person to my left's turn, I am also relying on the two people on my right to have interaction because the ways to combo off and the cheap interaction is so powerful that there is a chance that that person could try to go off and it will take all three of us to stop him. And then the very next person is going to try to go off and it's going to take all three of us again to stop him. And it will go around the table like that until everybody's run out of resources. And if one person's really far ahead, then it might be that everybody blows everything and they stop that one person and then instantly the next person wins. Uh, Or if there's a person that's not playing competitive EDH, when it's kind of their turn to pick up and interact, they just don't have anything. And so it's just like, oh, game's over. You're talking about Niv-Mizzet kind of replacing General Tazri. So how would you, as a CEDH player, use EDH rec to maybe fill out Niv-Mizzet? Because obviously you're not playing any more allies. Uh, What would you do if you're trying to look up some tech on what people are doing with CEDH for Niv-Mizzet using the site? Uh, So it's actually really easy, but kind of a little gimmicky. So most competitive EDH decks don't have a budget or they're brewed without a budget. So you just add in all the dual lands in your colors, uh, Mox Diamond and a Mana Crypt. So you're talking about using advanced filters then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, add, you, you take the decks, you find the commander, and then you add advanced filters and you just add the the old duels, a Mox Diamond and a Mana Crypt. And that we did some math and Mox Diamond and Mana Crypt are at like a 99.9% inclusion rate across all competitive EDH decks. It, they're like additional soul rings type of deal. Oh yeah. Like that much of a staple. Oh wow. yeah. Yeah. I mean the, there are some cards in specific colors that actually have a hundred percent. So like vampiric tutor, demonic tutor, Imperial seal. Those actually, if you're in black, uh, according to, we did a polling on the, uh, we have a database where people submit decks and they just, they're listed. And uh, Dan, one of our lab maniacs, he did some math on it. And yeah, Demonic Tutor, Vampiric Tutor, and uh, Imperial Seal were in every single black deck, just straight up. So definitely a way to use the site if you are trying to build a more competitive look for those specific key cards, especially it sounds like they're kind of expensive cards to whittle down all of the other I guess it would be kind of chaff that you wouldn't have to look through since you're looking for very specific things. Are there any limitations on that? Or has that been pretty much a flawless way for you to find recommendations for competitive cards? So it works, but kind of what this podcast does where it adds the human view to things, it doesn't really it doesn't really display the combo packages that are in a deck. So if you look up Thrasios and Timna and you put in Mana Crypt, Mox Diamond and the Duels, then you're going to find stack decks. You're going to find uh, Dramatic Scepter, uh, 
Paradox Engine decks, you're going to find Flash Hulk decks, you're going to find Storm decks, you're going to find Aluren decks, um, you're going to find everything. So then you kind of have to add an additional filter of the archetype that you're looking at. So you have to add in uh, Isochron Scepter, Dramatic Reversal, and any key cards that you are you know that you're going to be playing that are core to the plan that you're working on. That's so interesting. It just feels like such a different type of deck building method than I would personally be used to. When I see a commander, I want to build that commander. I don't start from a place where, like, oh, I want to build Landfall. Let me see what I've got in that particular strategy. But it definitely sounds the other way around when we're looking at the competitive metas. So I kind of made a discussion about that uh, on my Tassiger Seasons Pass deck. I pointed out that competitive EDH decks are more like a group of packages that are then assembled together. And so you you have this counterspell suite and you're going to have six to 14 counterspells depending on what deck you're in. And those six counterspells are always going to be the exact same. And then you have like your core combo suite. So if you're Flash Hulk, you've got Flash plus Hulk plus your three to six creatures you need for your combo. And then you've got your mana ramp and whichever route you want to go. And then you have your uh, spot removal if you need that. But they're all in small packages. So, I mean, give me a second. I'm pulling up my Tassiger. I've got like, you've got a reanimator package. You've got Flash Hulk. You've got Razaketh, the Foul-Blooded as a package where you have Razaketh and Life Death, where you then cast life and make all your lands creatures to sack to Razaketh and keep going. Or Eldritch Evolution. And if you look at the decks in that sort of way, where you say, all right, this is a six card package that you can easily distinguish, it makes it so it's a lot easier from Dana's perspective to say, I need to know everything. In reality, you kind of only need to know maybe 60% of a deck in order to be able to clearly identify what its plan is. And then you can formulate your plan based off of that. So so talking about some of these CEDH cards specifically that do a lot of work in that format, are there any ones that you think would be well served to cross over more into casual play? Yeah, yeah. Um, Mystic Remora is starting to get there, but I still think it's criminally underplayed. I mean, if, if you have access to blue, you would never be wrong to run Mystic Remora, I don't think, in a deck power-wise. So there was a game where I once paid seven mana for the cumulative upkeep on Mystic Remora, and that was the right decision. <laughs> it was actually it draws you a card basically whenever anyone else plays a non-creature spell, unless they pay four mana, which is just never going to happen. So it's like another Ristic Study, and people are very rarely wrong to play Ristic Study too. Yeah. At the same time, I had no action in my hand, and I was literally just drawing lands, but nobody wanted to give me cards. So as long as I kept Mr. Grimora up, people were literally just not playing spells because they knew that if I had more cards, I would start controlling the game. So I was just controlling the game by paying for Grimora. Alrighty. Any <laughs> other cards that should see more prevalence in EDH? Uh, I, I personally am a fan of stack interaction that isn't counter spells. So if, when you can use a spell in a way that you don't actually expect to use it, that starts getting you in like the competitive mindset. So if somebody casts, um, oh man, like even if you do Demonic Tutor or a... Uh, 
So if somebody casts a Court of Calling and you cast a Shadow of Doubt, you just you didn't counter their spell. It kind of hoses them a little bit. Now they can't search for that creature, or you they cast a counter spell and you cast Autumn's Veil. So your stuff can't be targeted and your stuff can't be countered. You're not actually countering what they're you're not countering their spell. You're just going at it at a different way. So if somebody's trying to combo off like with a um, thousand year storm and you just cast silence, you're like, cool, storm off for me now, please. Oh, nobody can cast anything. Let's move to the next turn. So kind of more silver bullet cards, would you say? They're multi-purpose bullets. Uh, <laughs> where it, they they work for the plan you have for them, but they can also be used defensively. When you don't, when like you're not in the point to win, you can use it to stop somebody else from winning. And they're just they're cards you don't see as much. I mean, like I love casting Shadow of Doubt. It is the best feeling ever when you're like, hey, I'm gonna try to win. No, you just can't search your library now. No. Yeah, that is definitely a really prevalent thing. I'm glad that none of the cards you've mentioned so far involve graveyard hate, <laughs> but let's be real. That's already catching on plenty in any type of commander, so I'm really sad about that. Yeah. I mean, people are right to do it, but I'm I'm still really sad about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's one more thing I want to touch on with Cameron here briefly, because I think he himself has done a lot of work in this area, and that's kind of dealing with that PR gap between mm. CEDH and casual EDH, because especially for a lot of years there, it wasn't the most polite interaction between the two groups. And I think you've done a very nice job of kind of uh, yourself working to mitigate some of that. Yeah. Uh, That is actually, I mean, like I said, when I had my first interaction with the community, they're like, this isn't what we do. And after finally getting into the format and learning what it was and enjoying it, I mean, it, I, I still love playing casual EDH. I mean, I carry decks with me. It's still fun. But if you've got people to play competitive EDH, it's a, another type of fun. And I, I would like people to be able to experience it. And so I definitely have made an effort to be more open about it and make it fun. And if you've got questions, uh, I am all over the place. <laughs> I am in about think 35 discord channels that i talk with people regularly oh yeah i'm in way too many and it's purposely just to be able to be contacted i'm i'm a patron of the command zone um of cmdr central jumbo commander all over the place just to be available so that if people have questions ping me at me whatever i'm i'll totally toss it back at you i can't be active all the time but yeah um it this is a format i mean i love edh and i i really like all parts of it i mean i i have a pre-con deck that is just a pre-con deck but then i have a, a full cedh i have several full cedh decks and it's just fun it's a blast and i want more people to enjoy it that's admirable that you can keep up with that many different discord channels because i don't even like talking to joey and dana most times <laughs> uh, it is kidding. more i am kidding <laughs> I've I've AFK'd several of them, but I just I'm there that if they know I'm there in the channel, and if they need to get a hold of me, they totally can. 
Well, and I like what you said initially when you were introducing yourself. You even mentioned that part of the thing that you do, it isn't necessarily just content creation. It's also, you said the word outreach, almost like it was like charity outreach or something like that. And you're bringing awareness to this format because I think, I don't know, maybe I just make up these things in my own head or something, but it almost, the the demon beast or something that is CEDH almost sort of looms in the back of my mind like this incomprehensible Cthulhu. And you're like, um, no, it's not that. It's something very understandable. Don't be afraid about it. People who play it are are not, you know, cultists praying to Cthulhu. Like it, it, it is just like its own perfectly fine and normal thing. And so it's nice to get that very refreshing perspective. Yeah, the, the, the hardest part that I have is that I'm, I personally have experienced the pub stomp. And everybody has where somebody has a deck that wildly outclasses everybody else at the table and they do what they're doing. And then they suddenly just win the game or they make it entirely unfun for everybody else for 15 to 30 minutes. And it's just like, okay, come on. You have a win on the table. You're just not doing it. What's going on? And the kind of the point of CEDH is having that social contract, that interaction ahead of time and saying, Let's do this and let's have fun with it rather than just being like, oh, he's a pup stomper. Just don't play with him. And so it part of the the specter of CEDH is being associated with the pub stomp. I mean, it's, it's happened on YouTube channels where they basically just set up pub stomps and said, this is CEDH. Um, and it's really it's it's unfortunate, but it's one of the things that I'm always trying to be positive about. This, this is fun and try it. <laughs> Well, and I think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes is you get that that person that comes to the shop with a, well, it's probably a CEDH deck or close to it, and then they, they do do the pub stomp thing, and then they tend to talk trash about it afterwards or, or refer to what they're playing as CEDH, and then you get that thing where the casual players just assume that's yeah. what CEDH is. Oh, yeah. And they get mean and nasty, and then they sometimes then take that out on actual CEDH players looking for serious games. So you get yep. this this feedback loop sometimes that gets pretty ugly. And I think you tend to do a nice job of breaking that down and kind of explaining to people where that disconnect really is. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I hate pub stompers. And I, I mean, that's why I carry 12 casual decks on me. It's just they're at different levels. And whenever I sit down, it's like, all right, what are we playing? Are we playing competitive? Are we playing casual? How long you've been playing Magic? Um, what do you think your deck does? Okay, I'll pull a deck that's similar to that, and we'll have fun. Yeah, I like that. And and actually, another thing that also kind of comes to my mind whenever I think about a more competitive bend to the format is that one of the most fun things for Magic, at least for me, is that it makes me constantly improve. No matter the game that I'm playing, I'm always looking for outs, I'm always evaluating the board states, I'm always trying to think one step ahead of my opponents, and in a format like CEDH, you live or die by that exact metric. You have to think one or two or three steps ahead because you're looking for those engines, not just for their win conditions. You're really trying to preempt a whole lot of stuff. So, like, it is a format that by its nature forces you to get better at the game. And that is also a really fun thing, regardless of the format that you're playing, whether you're a bit more casual or you're being competitive, getting better is always really cool. Oh yeah. And, and I know I'm not a great pilot and I know that when at the end of the game, I can point back at, I made a mistake here. And the kind of the fun part about CEDH is 
looking back through the game and figuring out, okay, if I had done this differently, um, one of the big things for competitive is you always have, you have a lot of tutors. And so what do you tutor for? It's turn two, you've got three mana, you can spend two to get something. Do you get a, a piece of your combo? Do you get a piece of mana ramp? Do you get some card advantage engine? And then you kind of, you start snowballing those decisions down. Okay, so last game, I got a combo piece, but then it got countered and now I ran out of cards. Okay, next game, I'll get a card advantage engine. And then you just kind of work through those steps iteratively until you get to it. You you get similar games in the broad strokes, but every single card that's played is entirely different. Yeah, definitely a really cool engine for improvement and i'm really glad that we got the chance to chat about it because it is definitely very enlightening for people like me who are afraid of things that are different so (laughs) on that how about we move to our last segment and that is challenge the stats we've got a lot of statistics here on edhrec but sometimes we're not sure that those statistics are entirely correct so we're gonna challenge them a little bit maybe say that they're you know cards are being played more than they should or perhaps less than they should matt i'm gonna pass this off to you what is your challenge the stats so my challenge the stats is going to be the new narset the narset big guy what uh, what is i forget the name of the parter of the veil parter of the of veils. veils yes the three mana one so after watching a few 60 card events go on um narset cleaned house did work took names, whatever you want to call it. Um, so the new Narset Parter Veils, one blue-blue. Each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn. So a little built-in Leovold effect there. Uh, she also has five starting loyalty and has a negative two ability uh, to tick down. Look at the top four cards of your library. You may ve- you may reveal a non-creature, non-land card from among them, put them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I think if you just want a good... Hate bear, anything that's going to discourage some of the more broken stuff, especially Cameron. I'm sure you, well, we already talked about a little bit. You like Narset. Um, I think mm-hmm. Narset is just going to be very, very powerful in general. Uh, so okay. I think it's not going to get played near as much as it should be. I do think Ashiok might be more powerful overall. But new Narset is crazy because one of the most powerful things you can do in Magic is draw cards. And Narset says no. So I would definitely give Narset Parter of Veils a look. I think that she is more powerful than we originally gave her credit for. Um, and I think, especially in those Super Friends decks that everybody's going to be playing coming up soon, um, definitely give her a look. Well, speaking of Super Friends, that actually segues into my challenge to stats this week. Of course we're it does. Pro- we're probably going to be seeing a lot of super friends decks a lot of planeswalkers Mm -hmm. in the format so i just want people to you know be prepared and we're gonna do that by playing black cards because black has graveyard synergies and black is the best color ever and it's really really fun so i've got a creature here that i think more people should have on their radar in case they're you know coming up against a lot of people who are using all those no you know those new proliferate cards that are going to be plaguing our format very soon the card that I'm looking at is Thief of Blood. Four black black for a 1-1 vampire with flying. Doesn't sound that great. But its ability, as it enters the battlefield, not when, as it enters the battlefield, you remove all counters from all permanents. Thief of Blood enters the battlefield with a plus one counter on it for each counter removed this way. If they have cumulative upkeep counters, if they have plus one counters, if they have loyalty counters, if they have anything, they go away. This includes your stuff, so you can do really ridiculous combos too if you want to get rid of your own counters on your 
I don't know, your glacial chasm or your dark depths or whatever, but also just like, screw you, Planeswalkers. They go away completely. I think this is a really great card, but it's only showing up in 2,400 decks at the moment. And I think it deserves to see a little bit more play. Don't look at the Elder spell if you're trying to solve some Planeswalkers. Look at this thing, because it's really cool and it gets really huge and it can hurt people, which is perfect. See, the MTG finance crowd actually beat you to the punch because that's a $4 card now. Is it really? As yeah, of, I'm looking at it after, right now. After this weekend, it it, it got uh, some love. I think BSB. Sir, I, think I am BSB seeing seventy nine cents on Card Kingdom. Jump oh. on that, Joseph. Make your yeah, fortune. I would, <laughs> I would buy a couple because TCG Player has three ninety five as the cheapest copy you can get. Oh wow! Wow! All right, didn't know that. A little bit of finance tech in here too. That's really great. Uh, Dana, how about your pick? My pick, and this is something I don't usually do. I'm going to go specific here for a specific commander. And I am going to talk about a card called Talent of the Telepath, and specifically in Talrand Sky Summoner decks. And Talent of the Telepath is a sorcery for two blue, two colorless, and it has spell mastery. So for the most part, we're looking at the Talrand deck and the spell mastery portion of it because in Talrand you are almost always going to have spell mastery. And what that does when you cast it is you get to dig seven deep in someone's library and cast up to two instants or sorceries from their library without paying the mana cost. So I, I don't think I've ever cast it in my Talran deck without having some mastery available just accidentally. And just for the fun of it, I wrote down the last three times I've cast it. And I was going to do more, but I just happened to use it tonight. I've only cast it three times and started paying attention. The last three I did were Cultivate and Harmonize, uh, Go for the Throat and Sign in Blood, and a Time Warp and Growth Spiral. Pretty solid. I mean, Those all sound excellent. And they're, they're, they're cast triggers. So in Talrand, you're making drakes off both the casts and you're making a drake off of Town of the Telepath. So you're casting those, those spells for free and you're making three drakes in the process for four mana. And, and you it's, are mana positive. And it's in less than 10% of the Tauran decks out there. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, th- I think if, if you are playing Tauran, you just probably should have Town of Telepath in your deck. The, the amount of value you're going to generate, I mean, y- occasionally are you going to cast it after somebody scavenger grounds or something? Sure. Um, so you don't get spell mastery. Or occasionally you're going to whiff if you choose poorly in the deck. But way more often than not, you're going to come out well, well ahead. All right, sweet. I love the pick. Cameron, take us out. What is your challenge to stats? So this is an old card. Uh, It's a reserveless card out of Mirage. It's Tombstone Stairwell. Joey, you're probably really going to love this, and I think Dana might too. So it's two black black. All righty. It's a world enchantment. It has cumulative upkeep of one black. And it says, at the beginning of each upkeep, if Tombstone Stairwell is on the battlefield... Each player creates a 2-2 black zombie creature token with haste named Tomb Spawn for each creature card in their graveyard. Then, at the beginning of each end step, or when Tombstone Stairwell leaves the battlefield, destroy all tokens created with Tombstone Stairwell. They can't be regenerated. So, it's really long. Let's break this down. For each creature in your graveyard, each turn, you create a 2-2 zombie. It has haste. At the end of the turn, it's destroyed. So, so it's not exiled. It's not exiled. Or sacrificed. Or sacrificed. So you can give them indestructible, and they stick around. But they're also creature tokens, 
They also have haste and they come back each turn. So they have pseudo vigilance. So if you're a black deck, you like to put creatures in your graveyard, you're probably going to have more creatures than your opponents. So you can just throw them at one of your opponents and get two time two damage for each one above the number of zombies they have. Uh, if you abuse death triggers, so say you've got two creatures in your graveyard and you're playing Marin, and you have Marin out. By the time it gets back to your turn, you're going to have eight experience counters. It's pretty solid. So Black Market. The one time I had Tombstone <laughs> Stairwell and Black Market out. I passed the turn after casting Black Market, and when it got back to me, it had 54 counters on it. Huh. Oh my goodness. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so this one, like I said, it's a reserveless card. It's currently like 379. It is criminally underplayed. Right now on EDH Rec, it's in 493 decks. Now we just had Verena, Lich Queen, come out. <laughs> now she says whenever you attack with one or more zombies, these are zombie tokens. They have haste. Draw that many cards then discard that many cards. You gain that much life. So you're drawing creatures to then put them in to then get you more zombies. It's in a total of 19 Varina decks. Wow. Let me, let me just check. Uh, there's 452 Varina decks out there. So like less than a percent. Sadisi Brew Tyrant, where you're making zombies. You're, you're putting creatures into your graveyard. This is what you want to do. It is in a 54 of 2,368 decks. Dana, your Glissa deck. You like getting death triggers, right? Yeah, just for the death triggers, it's worth it. Yeah, Marin. It's in 10 Marin of Clan Neltoth decks of 3,920. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. I was too busy buying Tombstone Stairwells. What's going on? Uh, good choice. <laughs> uh, so if you ever wanted to see if your podcast is listened to, check the price of Tombstone Stairwell. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We already tried that with Ghost Town and it worked. Yeah, uh, so uh, Muldratha, six of 1900 decks. I mean, in, in Muldratha, you don't even care about the cumulative upkeep because you just let it die and you recast it. They have haste. I mean, <laughs> this card is insanity. I can't believe that it destroys all the tokens that were created that turn. As long as you have more creatures in your graveyard, yeah. which let's be real, I'm going to have that then you always get, oh my goodness, this card's ridiculous. I, I think we might just need to wrap up the podcast so I can finalize this order, guys. Yeah, so uh, I, I just have to say, Apostle decks, Rat decks, it's just like custom made. It's what you want. And it's Mirage and it's 20 years old. <laughs> wow. All right, my mind has absolutely been blown. Cameron, thank you so much, first of all, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about competitive EDH, but most of all, most importantly for everyone, really, thank you for telling us about Tombstone Stairwell. Hey, anytime. If you guys want me back, let me know. I'll be here. This is a blast. I love it. And with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? Find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other show, CMDR Central. And Cameron, where can our listeners find you? In all 38 of those discords, perhaps? Uh, yes, you can find me there. I'm listed as Cameron Lab Maniac, just so I'm visible. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash Laboratory Maniacs, uh, on Twitter at The Lab Maniacs, uh, or you can email us, thelaboratorymaniacs at gmail.com. We're all over. 
Awesome. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader, that's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast, too. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus and Labania. Not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Well, well next year, maybe we'll go to Magic Fest Seattle then. That will make you happy. I'm just saying, it's an easy commute. <laughs> yeah. For you. <laughs> You're at Pike Place. You literally walk three blocks. Exactly. <laughs> But, Matt, we can just crash at Joey's end and save money on hotels. So. That's true. I have a guest suite in my building that I can rent to you. I'm telling you, I don't know why we didn't think of this before. Uh, I am a snuggler, so I'm going to decline that <laughs> offer, Joey. You always have me, Matt. That's true. There we go. I'm the big spoon. That's the only thing that matters to me. There is, there is like a, a special type of comfort that comes from being the little spoon, even just for a little bit.